Welcome to the Armageddon and Retrospect podcast. Today's episode is going to be recorded with my sister, Shannon. Say hi, Shannon. Hello. <laughs> so if you had the misfortune of listening to the episode about my life story, I kind of mentioned in passing the fact that my sister was disfellowshipped, as they call it within the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the people call it excommunication or shunning, however you want to refer to it. And I didn't really go into detail. I thought it would be better if I could actually have my sister here to talk about it herself. So maybe we can start out and discuss a little bit of her background uh, with the religion. And then we'll kind of get into the whole shunning aspect and our how we were reunited. All right, sis. So uh, why don't you just start out talking about kind of how you perceived our childhood a little bit as Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, well, it was different for sure. Um, growing up, you always felt like you were on the outside looking in of what normal was. Um, going to school, there was always that separation there. Um, you had one life at school and one life outside of school. Uh, you had to have separate friends. Um, most of your friends at school you weren't allowed to interact with. And from growing up in a small town, our, our pool of friends within the Kingdom Hall was limited to certain numbers our age or um, families that we were allowed to hang around with, which sometimes made it difficult because there's, you know, personality conflicts and such within that too. So I don't know. I guess I just feel like, we missed out on a lot of normal kid activities. We missed out on being able to learn how to play a sport or celebrate our birthdays or holidays or just participate in anything normal at school. Yeah, yeah I, I have a lot of the same perceptions. And so um, I know I was uh, baptized or kind of officially <laughs> put into the religion at the age of 11. How about you? How old were you when you got baptized I believe gosh my memory is a little fuzzy but I believe I was like 15 okay so about 15 15. yeah and uh that was I definitely felt there was a lot of pressure I don't remember feeling like it was something I truly wanted to do I Mm -hmm. felt like it was something that was expected of me and that would make our mom and dad happy Mm -hmm. and proud of me did not feel like it was something I wanted to do because I actually wanted to do it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I, again, kind of circles back to what I said in my life story about kind of that people pleaser mentality and social pressure and kind of putting your own will and your own desires aside and (laughs) conforming just basically to, you know, either make your family happy or your friends happy or the people in the congregation happy. So can understand that. Okay, so about 15. Um, and after you were baptized, what was your kind of your activity, let's say right after you were baptized as far as a witness? Did you do anything extra in the religion? or? Yeah, definitely. Um, was around, well, that was around the time I went, was able to go through school, worldly school, normal school, till I was a sophomore. And that was about the time, too, that Mom and Dad encouraged me to be homeschooled and be a pioneer. 
Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Take up full-time door knocking. <laughs> we all know how important that is. Um, so there was definitely a lot of pressure to do that. And, of course, it was one of those things where you want to please everyone. You want them to be proud of you. You feel like that's what you should be doing, even though mm-hmm. deep down that's not what you actually want to do. Um, I do think, however, with them taking me out of school and being at home, it made it easier because, uh, obviously when you're in school and the kids, your peers see you come to their door, they hide and laugh and tease you about it later. So I didn't have to deal with that portion of it, at least going back to school. Cause mm-hmm. you're kind of separated from that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear that. That was, um, especially, obviously, it was a small town again, so it was quite <laughs> quite common that you were running into people <laughs> you knew all the time. Or if you weren't actually going to their doors, the chances are they were going to see you outside walking from door to door, dressed up with your book bag. So it was, there was no avoiding it. So sometimes Mondays were rough when you first got back to school after the weekend and the kids would see you out and about. All right, so you did some pioneering. Yeah. Kicking ass, knocking on doors for a little while, yeah. and then so that's around fifteen, sixteen ish, and got the homeschooling treatment too. So um, that's uh, the fair university that we went through. <laughs> so <laughs> zero help, self taught, <laughs> self taught. <laughs> yes, which explains a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, yeah, so we have our our degrees in um, <laughs> Jehovah's Witness doctrine. And, uh, okay, so then what transpired after that um, as far as, so it seemed like it went okay for, you kind of were towing the line and trying to, you know, appear to be the good Jehovah's Witness, which I can also understand, but then kind of what changed after that? Um, well, I was working full-time and had met some people at work normal people that I actually wanted to hang out with outside of that and, you know, do normal teenage things like go to parties or talk to boys or, and, um, so actually I kind of started to live a secret life where I would after work want to go and hang with my friends from work, go to parties, drink, smoke cigarettes, all that stuff that normal teenage kids do but not when you're a Jehovah Witness. So, um, yeah, it was about 17, towards the end of my 17th year, that I things really started to change for me, and that was when everything kind of blew up. All right, so around 17, and uh, what was kind of the watershed moment that, <laughs> I guess, was the beginning of the end, if we're going to put it that way? Well... Mom and I was house-sitting for our Jehovah Witness neighbors that lived two doors down, and I was trying to sneak out with a, wine, a pack of wine coolers to meet my friends. With Bartles and James. Bartles and, yeah. <laughs> um, and Mom and Dad were waiting for me with flashlights, and that started a huge fight, and there were a lot of hurtful things said, and they basically said that, if I did not want to toe the line and do what I was supposed to do, then I was no longer welcome under their roof. And that actually, I remember very clearly mom at one point telling me she wished I'd never been born. Mm. 
And that for me was it. I called up my friend and her and her mom came and picked me up and moved all my stuff out that night. Okay. And never went back. So mom and dad's action as far as kicking you out actually was before there was any congregation judicial action uh, as far as the elders meeting with you or anything like that. Yes. Okay. Very that good. came months later. Uh, yeah, so I was about, I was young. I was about nine years old, as I already mentioned. So I just remember there being, I don't remember exactly what was happening. I don't think I understood it. But you and I were obviously close already, mm-hmm. even though I was only nine. And uh, I just remember there being a lot of tension and I would say uh, mostly anger. <laughs> uh, mom and dad. Uh, I'll, I'll, as we go a little bit further in the story, I'll kind of mention how I perceive their reaction to everything, but okay. So they, um, kick you out of the house. Okay. And your friend, uh, and her mother came over to get you basically to take you in. So you'd have a place to stay. And that's at 17 years old again, which is awful. Um, and so I just real quick, I just kind of want to bookmark this because a, if you think about a kind of a normal, parental reaction to the situation of catching your teenager sneaking out maybe drinking um well you're a mom so you can probably comment on it you'd probably be upset right but <laughs> your reaction wouldn't be to escalate the situation to the point where you actually kick the child out of the house more than likely if you could avoid that mm-hmm. so <laughs> seems like there was a uh probably because of the belief system just a, a real overreaction to the whole situation but uh regardless that's ultimately what happened so then what happened after that that moment or that situation so i really didn't hear from mom and dad i had a couple kids around my age from the kingdom hall reach out to me but other than that i kind of tried to separate myself so it was one of those scenarios where Everything they ever told you not to do, you decided you were going to try and do as much of as possible if you enjoyed it. (laughs) So, um, but at the end of the day, it was normal kid stuff. It wasn't like I did anything crazy or hurtful or, I mean, it was things that normal teenage kids do. It's Mm -hmm. how you learn those life lessons. We just never got that opportunity like normal kids. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so I kind of was just living life for a couple months. And then um, then one night I worked at a deli at the grocery store up there. And one night when I was leaving work, the store had closed. Um, that's when the elders were waiting for me in the parking lot. Okay. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> some type of ambush or stakeout. Was re- but at this point you had already stopped attending the keynote. Yes. I had already and distanced myself. It sounds like you weren't really interacting that much with people from the Kingdom Hall. Nope. So there's really no reason. They could have just essentially let let it drop and just let you live your life. I mean, their argumentation is bad anyways, the point that they have to kick people out to protect the congregation. But even if you use that reasoning, you weren't posing a threat, really, to anybody in the Kingdom Hall. <laughs> you just wanted to like live your life and basically be left alone from the sounds of it. But All right, so you got to work. There's an ambush set. Yeah. And then, so what did the elders say? So uh, there was three of them. 
waiting for me. And they said, you need to come with us. And I said, well, I don't want to. <laughs> but they left me no option. And they actually, like, I physically had to go with them. Mm. They even left my car at my work. They drove me to the Kingdom Hall, and there were several other elders waiting there. So I believe there was, uh, I think there was four or five of them. And me. What? In the back room. And quick, it was... Oh, sorry. Quick question. Was dad present? No. Okay. Grandpa was, though. Grandpa Van Horn. Okay. Which I found highly inappropriate. Yes. Okay. So I just wondered because I think sometimes they meet with minors. I guess not all the time, but sometimes they meet with a minor. It's like they'd want a parent there, but I guess they... Maybe because mom and dad already kicked you out. They'd consider right. you just be on your own. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but our grandfather our, was there. Our grandfather was okay. there. Okay. And they started an inquisition. There's mm -hmm. no other way to describe it. And it went on for hours. Now, the grocery store I worked at closed, I believe it closed at 9. They kept me in the back of that room till almost 4 o'clock in the morning. Wow. <laughs> and asked me very specific questions about what I was doing sexually, what I was drinking, what I, who I was hanging out with, what I was talking about. They told me I was going to kill my family because I was going to devastate them emotionally and this was going to break everyone and they were going to have to make an announcement. Huh. And finally, towards the end of it, I just kept saying, I do not want to be a part of this anymore. I want out. Like, I don't care what I have to do. You just have to let me out. Like, I don't want anything to do with any of you anymore. Mm -hmm. And... They basically said that they were going to make the announcement and they were going to disfellowship me and they thought that I should come and sit there while they made the announcement. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I believe I used lots of swearing. Okay. And <laughs> <laughs> told them what I thought about that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Great, yeah. Sometimes mm -hmm. it takes a lot of swearing. Uh, it. You need the shock value, I found, with the yeah. profanity, just yes. to kind of wake them up out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know towards my, the end of my demise, I started using a lot more profanity with them just to, like, yeah. get points to sink in. <laughs> okay, so you just, like, fuck it, I'm out of yes. here. You guys, you know, yeah. leave me alone, and I'm done. Okay. And then that was announced. Yeah. Um, and... You know, that's something I kind of vaguely remember. Did you go to the announcement? No. No, you didn't. Right. No. Okay. <laughs> I did not. Okay. Good. Good for you for not going. Uh, I wasn't present for mine either. But okay. So the announcement's made. And then at that point, what was the, I mean, just as far as like, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm just asking for people listening, like what was the interaction with the family and friends from that point forward? Nothing. I One time I was working and I remember dad came to the deli counter and I just said to him, I'm like, you know, I love you, dad, no matter what happens. And he just said, sometimes love isn't enough. And mm. that was it. And then he just walked away. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, okay. So other than that, uh, I actually remember mom, I had a few things at the house and she sent you to the door. <laughs> To hand them back to me, and I wanted to pull you inside and keep you, mm. but mom was waiting in the car, so I wasn't even really allowed to like 
interact with you that much. Yeah. Um, and she probably knew that you were the one person she could have sent up there that would have broke it for me. Mm. Yeah, kind of using me as a chess piece. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Ouch. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so pretty much, I, I know, like, obviously, being on the other side of it, again, being young, I just didn't really fully understand what was happening. But as time went on, I know, like, um, I, I kind of mentioned this, I think, a little bit in my story, is just they kind of uh, poisoned the well, you know? They just kind of <laughs> made it their mission to try to get me to basically view you as dead from that you know from that point forward and to all the you know all the terrible lines they use like we're not shunning her she's shunning us this is her choice and really just laying everything (laughs) at your feet so um so i know they you know there's varying levels of shunning in a way um some people take it more serious others don't but i know in our family it definitely was uh, taken very serious. So, um, as far as the interactions, I, I just kind of want to talk real quick because they have a, I won't, I won't call it a loophole, but they have a rule that you can be contacted basically for necessary family business. So I'm just kind of curious, like what, what calls did you get, um, or you know if any or what calls did you get about like necessary family business when when would you get involved in family business as as, that's how they put it um well our father was in a car accident and i did get a phone call about that Mm -hmm. and i actually drove all night down to see him Mm -hmm. and got cornered in the hallway by uncle sam before i actually got to the room okay (laughs) and had a good talking to from him about what was expected of me um, I found that they contacted me when our grandmother passed mm-hmm. or when she was getting to that point, which again, I drove up. Grandma Van Horn and I had a very close relationship and she actually would still call me and contact me mm-hmm. quite often when grandpa was out of the house. Mm-hmm. She would call me in secret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and good for her, like yeah. her, her humanity won out, uh, you know, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's usually a death or if someone's on their deathbed, Mm -hmm. um, is really only the time they feel necessary to contact us. Yeah. Yeah. I, cause I just want to pull that point out because necessary family business is never good news. So you're basically, (laughs) you're right. You're in this, all you're, all you're going to get is bad news. Someone's died. Someone had an accident. Someone has you know, well, maybe we know if they have cancer until it's like, you know, too almost too late to do anything about it. But it's just you're essentially stuck. All you get is family bad news, pretty much. That's um, you'll never get called because a baby was born, no. right, or anything positive. So it um, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of it's like the worst worst case scenario on both ends because it's like we're gonna shun you until we have something really sad and depressing to share with you it's pretty awful Mm -hmm. to do to somebody okay so that and that's pretty much been it Mm -hmm. right throughout the years um and uh you've somehow managed to you know put that aside to be a very kind and generous person and not let it 
embitter you as far as I can tell. It's, you know, it's obviously it's maddening. I think we would both agree with that, but Mm -hmm. so good job on that. Thank you. I'll vouch for that. (laughs) All right. So very little contact with the family, just a little bit around negative or, or traumatic events. All right. And so, um, I think that if I can remember correctly, I'm trying to think how many times we would have seen each other. I want to say it was like 24 years, right? Yes. Between you being about 24, 25 years, between you being disfellowshipped and us reconnecting. Yes. Okay. So I'm trying to think in that time frame in my head. Um, I remember when I did see you, I still kind of felt that connection with you. Mm-hmm. I knew that much, but yeah. I obviously I was still kind of a believer so I never went beyond that um but I'm just trying to think I think yeah just kind of like funerals you and I would interact a little bit um yeah or around dad's accident but it was I I think one time when we were in town for a convention I they like brought me over to meet Cassidy I think I have pictures from that when she was two or three um Cassidy being your daughter I just make that clear for everyone okay um and so I think, I, you know, I would like to talk about us reconnecting a little bit. I know we're kind of leaving out a lot of detail, but <laughs> we'll try not to make this too terribly long. All right. So um, I'm just going to give a, kind of a brief backstory, and I kind of, then I kind of want to get your perception of, of it too. Um, so when I started really having, I wouldn't even call them doubts at that point when I called. I think I was already like, um, considered it all bullshit by the time I called you, mm-hmm. but I was like f- freaking out. <laughs> I remember I was freaking out. I didn't know who to reach out to because everyone in my life was a believing Jehovah's Witness as far as I knew. And, uh, and I said, who can I talk to about this? Who can I talk to? Who can I talk to? And I thought I can, I have a sister out there I can talk to who's not a witness anymore. So, um, I know I didn't know your married name. So I had to like <laughs> Facebook stalk you <laughs> and somehow I found out the name of the salon you were working at. Mm-hmm. And so I called at work and it's still really touching when I think of the story because um, um, I remember pretty clearly that when I called, I was like, yeah, is, uh, is Shannon there? And she said, yes, who's calling? And I said, it's her brother, Bo. And I, <laughs> I just remember, I don't know who answered the phone, maybe you remember <laughs> But she said, oh, my God, wait right here. I'll go get her right now. So I don't know if she thought I was calling because one of our parents died. or But I, just, I could tell in her voice that she knew, like, this is serious if someone from Shannon's family is contacting her. And, and um, I was, like, really nervous but kind of excited to talk to you. And I remember we spoke briefly on the phone. You were working, obviously. And then you gave me your cell phone number so we could talk that night. Yeah. And, uh, Wow. I was, and again, I was super, I was super nervous because I was just like, you know, we hadn't talked, really talked and um, heart to heart for a couple of decades and then some. So, okay. So, um, but I just, I, I just remembered it being amazing. Like uh, a lot of ways that really helped me through that period. But I just kind of want to get your perception, like after basically such a long time, um, of not, not having any real like family contact, what 
<laughs> what was going through your head? <laughs> well, when you first called, I remember I hung up the phone and I was like, oh my God, you guys, that was my brother. Do you think he needs a kidney? Do you think <laughs> something's happening? Like, I don't know what's happening. I was all worried because usually in the past, it's mm-hmm. always only been bad things right. when you hear from someone. I'm like, oh my God. So, yeah. And then when I talked to you later that night, it was like, we picked up right where we yeah. left off. Yeah. I feel like we've always had that very close bond. Like even from the time I remember being little and mom bringing you home and you were this little baby and I I spent a lot of time taking care of you. Mm. Um, and I think that I always had that connection with you. I think we have very similar personalities. Mm-hmm. We like a lot of the same things. Definitely. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that you were actually calling me. There were so many times through the years I wanted to reach out to you, but I wouldn't put you in that position. Mm. That's not fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if anyone's listening that um, maybe is disfellowshipped or I just think too is kind of, it kind of goes both. There's a couple of things I, I wanted to kind of think about. And one is like holding out. I know some people don't want to hold out hope for their family. Um, cause it can be extremely hard to hold that space in your heart, I think. So sometimes you feel like I'm just going to need to cut them out and that's understandable, but I do think like there's always, <laughs> you never know, there is that slight chance that maybe at least one, one person in the family comes around or leaves or figures things out. Um, and, um, I think Shannon's point is also good. Like she didn't want to manipulate anybody into that situation or manipulate me, but, um, I know when I contacted you, um, you like had that space ready for me in your heart. And I was almost expecting you to say like, oh, now you're calling me, you know, fuck off. <laughs> it's been 24 years. So, you know, um, but it was just like, I think that's the other point is that it just was, there was so much mercy from your end as far as like, like, I understand, I get it, and I'm just here for you. And I think that's an amazing thing. Like, those two things together, of having that, keeping that little bit of space, keeping that mercy. I just think, kind of circling back to what I said, also said earlier, it could be so easy just to be, like, so bitter and angry with the family that, you know, when that moment arrives, maybe you're not open to it. So I just want to, like say thanks (laughs) I'm glad you reached out to me I'm glad that you had the courage to do that Mm -hmm. and I think it's easy to forget in this scenario and growing up like this that you're human everyone is human Mm -hmm. and we all just want to be loved and a family's love is supposed to be unconditional it's not supposed to come with strings attached. Mm-hmm. If you act this way or talk this way, we'll love you. But if you don't, that love goes away. And I think that sometimes when you're on the outside of that, it makes you more open to be being more accepting, being because you don't ever want anyone else to feel like that. Mm-hmm. Like I can't imagine ever not leaving that door open to you if you wanted to walk back through it. Mm. Because... I don't want to be like that. That's Mm -hmm. part of the reason I left is I didn't want to be that close-minded or Mm -hmm. I didn't want to close my heart to that. I don't think. And lay down like conditions that people have to meet. Right. We should accept people for who they are and 
especially your family. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And now it's been several years. Mm-hmm. We've been reconnected. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> uh, as people, hopefully we'll get to spend some time with both of us and um, realize that there's uh, double the awesome <laughs> out there. <laughs> so my sister's awesome and I'm awesome. And you yeah. put us together and it's just, yeah. Some houses implode just from the sheer awesomeness of it all. <laughs> no, but it's pretty cool. It is cool how when we reconnected, like you said, it's almost like we do have kind of a twins, mm-hmm. twinsing thing going on <laughs> where we well, <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. Like we didn't never lost that connection. And like you said, it was something that we picked up um, shortly after we started talking again. So, yeah. so it's been awesome uh, getting to know you. And uh, thanks for listening, uh, recording the podcast with me, so yeah. people get a little more backstory. I like it. I just forgot to mention at the beginning, I am recording this on an iPhone, so if the audio is a little bit rough, deal with it. Um, so I just want to throw <laughs> that out there. So thanks, sis. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it, and uh, uh, recommend everybody visit beautiful um, Green Bay, Wisconsin, when they get a chance. That's where this is being recorded. And I will not give my sister's street address. <laughs> Please leave her alone. Um, but you can contact me, armageddonpodcast at gmail.com. I've gotten some uh, nice emails, so thank you for those or questions. I always open to that. And also Instagram. You can follow on there. Um, Arm- it's at Armageddon Podcast. So thanks again for listening, and I'll be recording again soon. Ah!